Right, the subject that we are covering in this talk is sinlessness of the prophets in Islam. Muslims all over the world believe and are taught that all the prophets of God were sinless and that they had a protection against any tendency to any wrongdoing or any kind of sin. The doctrine in Islam is known as the Isma doctrine. And as we're going to see, it is contrary to the teaching of the Quran and Hadith. And I'll show you why Muslims believe it and what the reasons are behind this. Uh, in the book, The Religion of Islam by Klein, page 109, he says, the orthodox belief is that the prophets do not commit sin and are sinless, masum, same uh, word is from the word isma. But this dogma contradicts various statements of the Quran and of Muhammad as recorded in the traditions. When you go back into Islamic history, you find that in the early centuries of Islam, this Isma doctrine first arose. It wasn't there at the beginning, but it's first recorded in the Fiqh Akbar 2, which says all the prophets are exempt from sins, both light and grave from unbelief and sordid sins. Yet, and it makes an exception, stumbling and mistakes may happen on their part. And we're going to see a little bit more of that, watering down, diluting, perhaps even dissolving any wrongdoing on their part. That's a common way of interpreting in both the Quran and the traditions any kind of wrongdoing by a prophet. The Quranic records, though, as we will see, are very clear. And for this reason, and because it talks so much about the sins of the prophets, even lists a number of them that they committed, the Muslims have had to formulate some kind of doctrine to explain away these kind of teachings. And so from that has come this forgetfulness that uh, the prophets somehow just forget what God's command is or they make a mistake or they err somewhere. And you'll see that in Islam, because it's quite common in Islam, that sin gets reduced to a, a, a sort of not justifiable but an excusable um, state of mind that the person wasn't quite aware that they were doing something wrong and so you can't blame them. And by the way, it's only prophets that seem to be able to raise that excuse, no one else. Balyon in his book, The Modern Muslim Quran Interpretation, page 71, he says, As a rule, blameworthy behavior of prophets is smoothed over by means of all possible acumen. The reasons, I'll give them to you now, are simply that the Bible teaches that Jesus himself, one person, was sinless. But it's emphatic in saying that he is the only sinless human being who's ever lived on earth. Muslims find that sort of superiority to Muhammad intolerable. So whatever Jesus was, Muhammad had to be as well. Jesus performed many miracles. And although the Quran says that Muhammad performed no miracles, that the Quran itself is the only miracle that he had to offer, uh, you find Muslim tradition full of miracles, not only miracles similar to those that Jesus performed, but even more grandiose, more extreme, more extravagant. You find that in the history of Islam, wherever Jesus in Christian tradition or even within the Quran and Islamic tradition seemed to have any superiority over Muhammad, that Muhammad just automatically got elevated to the same position. And it wasn't easy to do that in terms of the sinlessness of the prophets. So they elevated all the prophets to a level of sinlessness, not just to Muhammad himself. The other is a more rational argument that Muslims make, and that is that all the prophets got their revelations from the angel Jibril, as we would know, the angel Gabriel. 
Quran in the second surah says that Jibril was the medium from Allah who brought the Quran down to Muhammad. So the attitude is that the Prophet had to be sinless to be able to deliver the text that was given to him impeccably because if he could fault God on other things, well, he could fault him on the transmission of his scripture. So they say that for the Quran to be free of error or any revelation of God to be preserved free of error, the the medium of it, in other words, the prophet, had to be free of error himself. Otherwise, how could you trust these people to deliver the scripture faithfully? Sakadina in his book, Islamic Messianism, page 135, says, The purpose of the al-Nabu'ah, that is the prophets, could be defeated if the people to whom they are sent thought that it was permissible for the prophets to commit sins and tell falsehoods. Because then they would think the same about their teachings and their commands and interdictions. And Fazlur Rahman in his book Islam on page 32 says, Muslim orthodoxy, therefore, drew the logically correct conclusion that the prophets must be regarded as immune from serious errors, namely the doctrine of Isma. Logically correct. <laughs> well, this was a conclusion, nevertheless, which was drawn from the preconceived notion that God could not ensure the perfect transmission of his revelations unless he simultaneously preserved his messengers from all possible errors of conduct and character. This was not a doctrine that arose out of an objective study of the Quran or the Hadith. According to the Bible, all its writers, not only prophets but other men as well, wrote their scriptures under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Spirit of God inspired them as they wrote to make sure that what was written was inerrant. But that had nothing to do with their characters, their personalities or their failings or sins. According to the Bible, especially Romans 3, all men are sinners, all fall short of the glory of God. And it makes no difference that they had that tendency to sinfulness in terms of receiving God's guidance. The Spirit of God working through them as they wrote guaranteed the perfect transmission of the word that he wished to get across. But the Isma doctrine in Islam is here weakened if you say that sinful Muslims could have preserved the Quran perfectly over the centuries. But the strange thing to me is that when I, I study the Quran itself, I read the very earliest texts of the traditions of Islam, and the point that is made there is that the Prophet himself is the medium of the text as it comes from the angel. He passes it on to the people. Fair enough. But it doesn't stop there because you have to have more and more Muslims who then have to transcribe the text as well. We've had that through all the handwritten manuscripts that we know of today that have been handed down over the centuries, transcribed, written out. How do you trust these people to transcribe the Quran perfectly if they were sinners? And I've never heard a Muslim answer to that, a rational Muslim answer. Why did the prophets have to be sinless to be able to faithfully convey the text? They're only acting as messengers. According to Islam, they receive the message from above. They take it, and like a postman who delivers your post, he simply gives it to the right address, delivers the correct letter. From there on, the transmission continues century after century, year after year. And this doctrine would only be logically correct, in my view, if you then said that all of the transcribers of the Quran after that to be able to transcribe it perfectly must have been sinless as well. That to me is just a logical deduction. I can't see why the prophets had to be sinless to convey the text perfectly, but not all the people who've conveyed it since.
Stanton says in his book, The Teaching of the Quran, on page 51, but in the Quran, Muhammad remains a fallible and a sinful creature. The conception of him as the ideal man and prototype of humanity belongs to a later development. Like so many things in Islam, the character of Muhammad the Prophet gets a facelift over the centuries. Khronsi, Snooker Khronsi, says in his book, Mohammedanism, page 68, the acceptance of this doctrine, contrary to the original spirit of the Quran, had moreover a dogmatic motive. It was considered indispensable to raise the text of the Quran above all suspicion of corruption, which suspicion would not be excluded if the organ of the revelation were fallible. But again, as I said to you earlier, you must apply that to every person who transcribes the Quran in all the centuries that follow. How can you say that you can trust them to transcribe it perfectly? Note this that, again, as I mentioned earlier, in Islam, sinlessness, and this is important for just our simple understanding of this word, does not have the same meaning as it has in Christianity. It means protection. It doesn't mean a divine righteousness. It doesn't mean a total perfect purity and cleanliness. It just means a protection from sin and wrongdoing. In the Bible, sinlessness is a state of the heart that reflects God's holiness. In the Bible, in Romans 3.23, those who have sinned against God are also those who fall short of the glory of God. It's a rebellious condition, sinlessness, in the Christian faith and in the Bible as well. As you find, for example, in Jeremiah 17, where the Lord says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately corrupt. I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the mind to test every man and give it to him according to his doings. It is a state of heart, a state of mind. But in the Quran, sinlessness is just seen as a sort of neutral state that you're neither good nor bad. You're just protected from doing anything that could actually condemn you on the day of judgment, or more so as here. Supreme purpose of it is just so that you can communicate the revelations of Allah faithfully. Thompson, in an article in the Muslim World, in volume 34, page 115, on Muhammad says, the impeccability of Muhammad has a different basis than the sinlessness of Jesus. Muhammad's impeccability is asserted for the purpose of establishing the validity of his revelation. Jesus' sinlessness is a corollary of the affirmation of his divinity and also of the Christian concept of the true nature of man. Prophetic protection or impeccability in the Islamic isma is a postulate of the reason in respect of revelation rather than the definition of the quality of Muhammad's person. You see the difference. Sinless prophetic condition is simply a state that is supposed to enable him to transmit the revelation properly. But in Christianity, the only type of sinlessness that the Bible knows is sinless perfection. And that is an exact representation of God's perfect holiness which Jesus was the only person on this earth who was ever able to reflect that. Islam doesn't understand or know the fallen state of man. In the Quran and in the teaching of the Hadith, and in fact in all Islamic thinking and theology to this day, there's no such thing as sinfulness. People do wrong, but they can match that either by doing right or simply by performing Islamic laws and Islamic ceremonies and by just being adhering to them. One almost gets the impression that on the Day of Judgment, it's just a, as so much of Islam teaches, that it's going to be a weighing up of the good against the evil. And if the good exceeds the bad, 
you'll be justified and accepted. On the other hand, if it's the other way around, you might be knocked off the cedar, the bridge, and land up in the fires of hell. I, I actually cannot find a serious doctrine of salvation in Islam or of what exactly sin does to affect a man's hope of eternal glory or even just of an eternal life because it seems so vague. Muslims have told me many a time, oh no, even if you have sinned against Allah, you'll have to pay for those sins. Uh, but you'll go to hell for a while and then once you've paid for them, you'll go to heaven. Uh, no, we know we're going to have to count for our sins, but uh, we rely on the Prophet's intercession and we know that as Muslims, one day our hope is eventually we're going to get there. <laughs> It's not easy to codify, it's not easy to work out exactly what the Muslim attitude to sin is or what their conception is of the consequence of it. But at this point, you have at least the idea that it's not a sinful condition. It's not a state of mind, not a state of heart. The Quran, as I said earlier, as we will see, shows that the Prophet, of Muhammad, uh, Prophet Muhammad of Islam himself was guilty of sin directly. The words used cannot be uh, reasonably translated to mean anything else. But Islamic law and Islamic theology have come down to the point of only seeing him as somebody perhaps prone to error, mistakes, forgetfulness, all these nice euphemistic expressions to cover up his wrongdoing. Let's have a look at the sins of the prophets in the Quran and Hadith. In the Bible, firstly, as I mentioned earlier, you see that Jesus himself is declared to be sinless. 1, 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And there are many other passages which teach the same thing. But the rest of the prophets are not spared. Any wrongdoing on the part of a prophet of God is given uh, full publicity in the Old Testament. If you know the story of David and his adultery with Bathsheba and the way he arranged to have her husband killed in the forefront of battle, the way Moses killed an Egyptian, and you can go on and on, about the only Old Testament prophetic figure who escapes the censure of Scripture is Joseph. He doesn't seem to have done anything seriously wrong, not guilty of any kind of dramatic scandal in his life. <clears throat> Psalm 51 verse 4 and the other passages of Scripture show how the prophets reacted, though, when they sinned against God. David says in that psalm, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so you are justified in your judgment. And you are above reproach when you yourself are called to account. Job 24 6, Job says, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. The prophet Micah Chapter 7, verse 9 says, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Straightforward teaching in the Old Testament that the prophets not only had sinned against God and committed serious wrongs, many of them were guilty of some outrageous scandals, but that they turned to God in repentance and confessed their sin towards him in unmistakable terms. Now the interesting thing is the Quran does exactly the same. In Surah 28, verse 16, Moses, in response to killing the Egyptian, says, O Lord, I have wronged my soul, so please forgive me. And Surah 26, verse 82, speaks of the one who I hope will forgive my sins on the day of judgment. Yet, Muslim scholars and others never tire of trying to water this down, dilute it, and as I said earlier, even dissolve it. Uh, 
Muhammad Ali in his famous book, The Religion of Islam, says, page 199, it is one thing to commit a mistake and quite a different thing to go against the divine commandments. And no sensible critic could twist such words into a confession of sin. <laughs> As we'll see later, that's exactly what these were, especially from the words used. The word used for faults in Surah 26, 18, is translated by Ali as mistake in his translation of the Quran. But it is the word khati'ati, the very strong Arabic word, meaning far more than just mistakes or forgetfulness or anything like that. Yet Ali goes on to say in typical Muslim style, this word too has a wide significance and covers all unintended actions and mistakes and errors of judgments. It's mentioned therefore in connection with the Prophet does not imply sinfulness. As you can see, it's just a constant attempt to sort of undermine the wrongdoing of the person and to say he never intended to do wrong. It wasn't his, uh, in his mind. He just somehow made a mistake or just forgot for the moment what the command of God was. But this interpretation is hardly consistent with the use of this word in the Quran. Let me give you another passage where it appears. Surah 71 verse 25. And listen to this text carefully. Because of their sins, they were drowned in the flood and were made to enter the fire of punishment. The word sins here, as in 2682, is khotiatin, or in this case, khotiatihin. Sins so serious, these people had committed, that they were destroyed. In fact, the whole world at the time of Noah is said to have been destroyed because of the khotiati, the sins that it had committed. And as a result, the only destiny for them was destruction and consignment to hell. And it's very strange to find one word when it is used of anybody else in reaction to God or something you do wrong, said to be so serious that you would be destroyed in a flood and consigned to hell and destroyed forever. But if the prophet does the same thing, same word used, kortiati, oh no, now it's just forgetfulness, just a mistake. It's just something that can be overlooked and just brushed aside, can just easily be corrected. No. These are not mistakes and errors that the Quran talks about when it attributes them to, to prophets. All it is is Muslim scholars trying to water down and dilute the meaning of a very strong Quranic word. The Quran uses the same words for Abraham's prayer for forgiveness and their sins. And so Ali in Surah 2682 talks of Abraham's mistakes. 7125 on the other hand, when he's talking of the people who oppose Noah, same word, but now it suddenly becomes wrongs. See how this Muslim translator, and I must say in fairness that uh, Muhammad Ali was a member of the Ahmadiyya movement, and many Muslims regard them as non-Muslims, but in the Muslim world, his translation has been widely accepted and recognized. But for the same word, he translated in one place mistakes, and in another place wrongs. All depends on who it's being attributed to. If it's a prophet, it's just a mistake. Error of judgment. But if it's someone else, it's a wrong for which a person deserves to be condemned. And this double standard that you see here can only be explained by the unwillingness to acknowledge that there was one sinless personality who lived on this planet, and that was Jesus. And that the rest of the prophets, when it comes to human sinfulness, fall by the same standards as anyone else. When you look at the Quranic attitude to Adam, who in the Quran is a prophet, not in the Bible, Surah 2, 35 to 36, he, we find that he ate of the forbidden fruit. And the story is very similar to the one we find in the Bible. So because the command 
not to is in the plural, Yusuf Ali and Pekthor say here that all mankind is included. It wasn't just Adam who ate of the forbidden fruit. They sort of get close to the Christian idea of original sin and implicate the whole of mankind. And they're saying in this case, Adam is just sort of representing mankind. But again, because he's a prophet, it's, uh, it's just a mistake on his part. For anybody else, it's serious wrongdoing. Ali again in the Religion of Islam, page 201. There was no intention on the part of Adam to disobey the divine commandment. It was simply forgetfulness that brought about the disobedience. I'd like to use that kind of excuse occasionally if I was ever brought up into a court of law and accused for driving over the speed limit or going through a traffic light. I'm sorry, sir, I just didn't notice it. I just didn't see it. <laughs> You've got to acquit me. I didn't do anything wrong. The Quran teaches quite plainly that it's not forgetfulness that led Adam to sin against God, but that he fell to the temptings of Satan. This is very important to get this clear because here the Muslim argument really falls down. Surah 20 verse 20, it clearly states that Satan tempted him to wrongdoing and that this was after God had warned him that Satan was an adversary who'd seek to get him out of the garden. Now, how do you forget that? It was the only thing that Adam was told not to do, was to eat of the forbidden fruit. And yet, in Surah 20, verse 120, Satan says to him, O Adam, shall I lead you to a tree of eternity and to a kingdom that never decays? And what does Adam do? He listens to the devil. He doesn't listen to God. God has told him, don't touch that fruit. So he listens to him. But he does say to him, but we're not allowed to do this. I've been told we're not. So we're, nothing is forgotten here. He remembers clearly what the command was. Then in Surah 7 verse 20, we find that Satan says to him, Oh no, but your Lord only forbade you this tree, lest you should become angels or such beings as you live forever, if you eat of it. So you find a discussion going on between Adam and Satan. It's quite clear he hasn't forgotten a thing. There's no oversight here. There's no mistake here. He's under no illusions that he's not allowed to eat of that fruit. It's the one commandment God has given him. You may eat freely of every fruit in the garden, but you'll not eat of that one fruit. You would think that if this man was a prophet of God, as Islam believes him to be, that he wouldn't get this one wrong. But what does he do? He goes and he eats of the fruit after being reminded by the devil that your Lord forbade you not to eat of this tree must have had an incredibly absent mind at that time in his life to just overlook this. The big question is that if what Adam did was just a mistake, why was the penalty so severe? Adam and Eve, according to Islamic belief, were in the Jannat al-Adn, same as the Bible uses the expression Garden of Eden. But Jannat in the Quran and certainly in Islamic belief is also a symbol for heaven. Jannat al-Furdos, the Garden of Paradise. And it is believed that they were cast out of heaven itself, right out of paradise, onto this earth. According to Islamic folklore, they roamed around the earth for 300 years and only met each other on the Mount of Arafat sometime later. And there, nearby Mecca, they repented of their sin and Allah accepted them. And Islamic tradition goes so far as to suggest that no sun had shone for those 300 years. And only at that point did the sun begin to shine and there was light on the earth again. Pretty severe consequence of wrong, one wrong act and one wrongdoing. But more than that, Adam and Eve were never allowed back into paradise, even if they had been forgiven of their sin. What happened to Adam and Eve is that they lived for a long time on earth and then died and were buried here, 
which confirms the biblical teaching, and especially what God had warned them, the day you eat of that fruit, you will die. The consequence of their wrongdoing was that they never again saw the Garden of Eden, but actually just eventually came to nothing but decay. And the whole human race came literally, in a sense, down with them to earth, and we've all been decaying and dying ever since. <laughs> to pass that off as just an oversight on Adam's part is just ridiculous. It was a very serious act of wrongdoing. And in any event, if Adam was not the first person who sinned, then who was? If this wasn't a sinful wrongdoing, then what introduced sin into the world? And how do you compare what Cain or anyone else did with what Adam did and yet again say, oh, it was nothing serious, just a small mistake for which God just made him pay a light punishment and kicked him out of heaven never to get back there. <laughs> One Muslim, however, Raza in his book Introducing the Prophet says, when they were asked about their present shameless condition, they confessed that they were beguiled and outwitted. They turned rebellious for a moment, forgot his kind grace and commandment and broke the covenant. Now that's more like it. And he says, in other words, they had sinned. I like that. <laughs> One simple definition. There was no sin in the state of nature, Rosa says. Sin came from the knowledge of it, from the fateful fruit of the tree of knowledge. When Adam hid behind the tree and hesitated to come before God in the nude, sin had been born. Oh, I like that. He could have been a Christian theologian. <laughs> Very well said. The Quran also teaches that Noah and Jonah were transgressors and that they too prayed for the forgiveness of all their sins. Surah 11.47, Surah 21.87 respectively. And these words said in another context appear to be a fitting conclusion to our study of this teaching here on the sins of the prophets. Alfred Jaloum in his book Islam says, This much is true at least. The Quran is nearer to Christianity than the system of Islam as it has developed through the centuries. The Quran sees all the same prophets as committing the same sins and it records many of the sins that are found in the Old Testament of the Bible as well. In fact, in the Sunan works of At-Tirmidhi, Ibn Majah, and Ad-Darimi, it is recorded that Muhammad once said, and listen to this, every son of Adam is a sinner. And the best of sinners are those who repeat cons repent constantly. And I'm quoting that out of the Mishkat al-Masabi, volume 3, page 360. And this shows that even Muhammad didn't believe in the sinlessness of the prophets. How could every son of Adam be a sinner if Adam himself wasn't a sinner? Let's move on to the prophet of Islam himself because this is where the thorny problem comes from Muslims and this is what they're really trying to get around. In Surah 47 and verse 19, the Quran expressly says to Muhammad, Know therefore that there is no God but the law and ask forgiveness for your faults and for the men and women who believe. And then again, the very next chapter, Surah 48, 1 to 2, Verily we've given you a manifest victory that God may forgive you of all your sins of the past and those to follow, fulfill his favor to you and guide you on the right way. Yusuf Ali puts the word fault in there. Once again, same old Muslim uh, position of trying to just water all this down to just faults, errors, judgment, mistakes and so on. But the words in Arabic are very clear. Was from wastaghfiru come the words al-khafur, 
Allah is the forgiving one. And there's really no way in the Arabic language, certainly in the Quran, that any word with those root letters in it, in this case, wastaghfir, can mean anything but ask forgiveness. From this comes al-khafur, the forgiving one, and so on. The Arabic word used here for sin is dhamb, which is probably the strongest Arabic word that could possibly be used in the Quran to describe human wrongdoing. And it's leveled straight at the Prophet of Allah. Only reasonable way to to translate this text is ask forgiveness for your sin. It's interesting that in Surah 12 and verse 29, the same word is used for Potiphar's wife when she is told to ask forgiveness for her sin. And you know what her sin was. Firstly, to try and seduce Joseph and failing to do so, then to falsely accuse him of having tried to seduce her. Same word used, same description, same word format as is used when the Quran tells Muhammad to ask forgiveness for the same kind of sins he might have committed. And interestingly, now Yusuf Ali translates the same words, now it's ask forgiveness for your sin. Previously with the Prophet, it's for your fault. Funny how one word can take on a double meaning when it just suits the Muslims to uphold the integrity of their Prophet. Muhammad Ali, who must have said this with tongue-in-cheek in commenting on Surah 48 verse 2, says that the Arabic word dhamb here only means human shortcomings. Anywhere else in the Arabic language where you find that word used, it's used to describe criminal wrongdoing. In, on page, that's on page 199 of his book, The Religion of Islam. And yet he concedes on page 197 that the general meaning of that word is sin. Not general meaning, that is the meaning of the word, sole meaning of the word. Al-Badawi, on the contrary, once we go back into history, he said that this means ask forgiveness for everything blameworthy that you might have done. And that once again it gets far closer to the point. Now for Jaloum again in his book Islam, page 119 says, The doctrine is in flat contradiction of Surah 48.2 where it is said that God may forgive you your early and later sins. And we may add to the whole spirit and tenor of Muhammad's words. Uh, not only have Muslim writers had to resort to literally unfortunate twists of exegesis to explain away this word for sin, but they've had to do the same with the word istaghfir, which, as I said earlier, throughout the Quran means simply ask forgiveness. Once again, Muhammad Ali concedes that if the word is generally taken as meaning asking for forgiveness of sins, but in Muhammad's case, he says it means simply to ask protection from sin. And he goes on and says, Prophet Muhammad is said by these critics of Islam to be a sinner because he's commanded to seek divine protection. Istaghfir, the word never means protection, for his thumb, and doesn't comment on that, it means sin. Now to seek protection against sin does not mean that sin has been committed. He who seeks divine protection rather guards himself against the commission of sin. And moreover, the word used here is dhamb, which means any human shortcoming. Well, this is stretching it as far as you possibly can from what the original meaning of the words is. That is really a specious argument. Throughout the Quran, as I said, Allah is called al-khafur, which every Muslim knows means the forgiving one. A different word is used to describe him as the protector. And it is al-muhaymin, found in Surah 59, 23, one of the first titles of Allah 
in the 99 names of Allah in Islam. Likewise, in the Quran, the angels pray to God for the forgiveness of their faithful on the one hand and protection from the fire on the other. Different word used for forgiveness and protection. Surah 40 verse 7, forgive those who turn in repentance and follow your path and protect them from the penalty of the fire. Here the word forgive, as usual, is faqfir. comes from the same word as khafur, istaghfir, wastaghfiruna and so on. The word for protection here is waqihim. Uh, in all over the Quran where that word appears, it means protection. Even in Surah 5, verse 77, Christians are told, Ask forgiveness for your kufr, for your blasphemy, in calling Jesus the Son of God. I think on the Day of Judgment, if I came up in front of Allah, I'd say that was an oversight, that that, that was a mistake. There was an error of judgment. If the Prophet of Islam can claim that, so can I. <laughs> can only mean ask protection. It cannot mean ask forgiveness. Very unfortunate this because you, there's just no mental integrity here in Islam in handling this subject. This, is, this whole issue is forced to try and lift Muhammad into the same status as Jesus. The Muslims just don't want to admit that Jesus was unique in being sinless over and against the prophet of Islam. Some Muslim writers have another way of getting around this problem. They say Muhammad was only commanded to ask forgiveness in a representative capacity. That is not for any sins of his own, but for his people's errors. But again, this is contradicted by Surah 47, 19, where he is distinguished from the believing men and the believing woman. First, he must ask forgiveness for his own sin and then for those of his followers. Hunabam in his book, Mohammedan Festival, says, It need scarcely be stated that theology has long since articulated popular feeling in recognizing the prophet's immunity from error and sin. But when you turn to the Sahih of al-Bukhari, volume 9, page 403, you find exactly what you find in the Quran, that Muhammad freely acknowledges that he's a sinner. Let me read these words to you and tell me if you can, having read these, come raise an argument that Muhammad was just looking for protection from, from oversights. These are his own words. So please forgive the sins I which I have done in the past or will do in the future and also those which I did in secret or in public and that which you know better than I. No one has the right to be worshipped but you. And that can only lend us to the conclusion that irrespective of what Muslims conveniently wish to believe and teach today that the Quran and Hadith are quite emphatic in showing that Muhammad was a sinner like anyone else. He certainly believed he was. This brings us in conclusion to the person of Jesus. And let's have a look at him and what the Quran and Bible teach about him. Well, the Bible is quite emphatic that Jesus had no sin. You never find him ever being told to ask protection from faults or anything even remotely like that. Instead, these are the definitions you find of Jesus in the Christian scripture. In Hebrews 4.15, he was one who was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Now, what text I mentioned earlier, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 2.25, he committed no sin, no guile was found on his lips. And 1 John 3.5, 
He appeared to take away sins and in him there is no sin. Quite clear from the Christian scriptures that Jesus was without sin. Now the fascinating thing is that the Quran acknowledges this. The Quran never records anywhere that Jesus was told to ask forgiveness of his sins or protection from faults or anything else. Instead, according to the Quran, when Mary protested when she saw an angel come to her to announce the conception of Jesus, the angel said, I'm only a messenger of your Lord to announce to you the gift of a holy son. That's Surah 19, verse 19. The word used here for holy is zakiyah. Zakiyah is a word meaning, comes from the root words meaning purity. And it's only used twice in the Quran to define any individual. Jesus is one and the other one is the strange personality in Islam called Al-Hidr, whom the Quran knows, the green one. In Surah 18 verse 74, uh, it is, he says to him, have you saying, this is Moses speaking to Al-Hidr, have you slain an innocent person who slew nobody? Story goes in Islam, the tradition that comes from this, that he was walking with this elusive personality who just suddenly appears now and again and doesn't. And he was going along with him and this person just suddenly walked up to somebody and killed him straight on the spot. And Moses looks at him and here's a Quranic verse. Did you kill a Zakia person who has never harmed anybody, done no wrong to anyone? In this case, the word Zakia is just being used in a relative, very limited context, meaning that he was pure of any wrongdoing that justified you in murdering him. But the companion who seems to know better than Moses and just says, you're questioning me about things you don't understand, so just be silent. Well, make of that what you will. It's a legendary story. But with Jesus, the word is used to describe his whole character. I am an angel of your Lord to announce to you a Zakia Hulan, a little boy who is without sin, absolutely holy in his whole character and personality. Uh, Blair says in his book, The Sources of Islam, on page 58, it's a remarkable fact that Jesus alone is proclaimed in the Quran as the sinless prophet of Islam. There is no passage in the Quran which attributes sin to Jesus and no shadow of a suggestion that he had, like Muhammad, to ask forgiveness for himself. Samuel Swamer, his book, The Muslim Christ, page 124, says the Quran, while mentioning the sins of Adam, David, Solomon, and the other prophets, leaves no doubt as to regards the purity of the character of Jesus. And just as we went to Bukhari to find a remarkable tradition showing quite clearly that Muhammad asked in no uncertain language to God for the forgiveness of his sins, yet that same book, Sahih Bukhari, Al-Bukhari, volume 6, page 54, quotes Muhammad as saying, No child is born but Satan touches it when it is born. From that moment it starts crying loudly because of being touched by Satan, with the exception of Mary and her son. <laughs> and that is Jesus. So even Muhammad himself almost backs up the Christian doctrine of the universal original sin of all men by saying that the moment every child is born, Satan fingers it. And because of that, when you hear a baby crying, according to Islam, it's a mythical tradition, as here in the Quran, in Bukhari, and that it's because of the fingerprint of Satan on that child from the moment of its birth. One exception, the mother of Jesus and her son. Well, the early Muslims couldn't tolerate this kind of confirmation in its own religion 
of the perfect sinlessness of Jesus. So it invented the Isma doctrine to somehow block it, to somehow stop it, and to, couldn't get around the fact that Jesus is sinless, so the only answer is to declare all the prophets sinless, and then, as you've seen, to use the most uh, fatuous arguments to try and get around it and mistranslate Quranic terms, in fact, most appalling double standards in using the same word in one context and using it with, with a different translation in another just to keep up the appearances. You find that the Church of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, has done the same with Mary. Um, if Jesus ascended to heaven, the mother must also have gone to heaven. So you have her assumption to heaven. And the same if Jesus himself was uh, without sin, then she must have had an immaculate conception as well. Um, strange that within the Christian tradition that there should be this huge attempt, mainly based on pagan uh, mythology about the picture you've often seen of the, the Madonna, the mother and child. That goes back to pagan mythology. It doesn't come from Christianity, but it was believed in in Europe. It was a sort of image of this holy mother and child uh, psychology. And with it came the idea that, as with Islam, that if Jesus was uh, sinless and he ascended to heaven, well, therefore his mother must have been able to do the same, got to match her up somehow. She's the Theotokos, the mother of God. Now, Islam does exactly the same. If Jesus ascended, uh, was sinless, and if Jesus performed miracles, oh, we've got to give Muhammad a facelift, and we've got to bring him up and say that he did the same. He was sinless as well, and he also could perform miracles. Goldziher, in his book, Muslim Studies, volume 2, page 346, says, An unconscious tendency prevailed to draw a picture of Muhammad that should not be inferior to the Christian picture of Jesus. But in conclusion, the Isma doctrine, as you can see, has no foundation in the Quran or Hadith. In fact, it's diametrically contrary to what is taught there. And in both the Quran and the Bible, the only personality defined as sinless is Jesus himself.